jumping uh, back into the book of Acts uh, this morning. Chapter 14. So hear God's word. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned our minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a, young, a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looked or looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle, apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. And you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, he scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium, Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom uh, they believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the, uh, to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So that will be the ending of what is so-called the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. 
But after preaching the gospel of grace in Pisidian Antioch, they were driven out of the district. Not surprisingly, by Jewish leadership who opposed them and their gospel of grace. Such as this would not be uncommon for both. It would, in fact, become pretty much the very norm. Wherever they would go, they would see similar results. There would be opposition that would go to great lengths in order to silence them. But something else occurred virtually everywhere they went, which is of far more importance. And that is that there were more and more conversions to Christianity. Many of them among people of Jewish descent. You notice here that Paul and Barnabas are practicing the principle of go to the Jews first and then, only then, to the Gentiles. So they're driven out of town. They come to another place called Iconium, which was about 70 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch, where there was another Jewish synagogue. And as was their practice, that's where they went. And that is where they shared the gospel. Iconium was an ancient city founded by the Hittites. In the time of the Romans, it became a very important military base for Roman armies. It is still there today. It goes by the name Kanya. They do the same thing <laughs> that they have everywhere they've been before. They go to the Jewish synagogue. They present the gospel. They preach the gospel. And they see similar results. A great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. The gospel message is going forth in power and might perhaps in a manner in which it never has since. What I would say to you this morning is that the result that we see here with Paul and Barnabas would be extremely rare among modern day missionaries. Typically, their ministry today is more like a few here and a few there. So one of the things that I think that we need to be thinking about and certainly praying for is this, is the Holy Spirit was moving in a manner that has rarely been seen over the last 2,000 years, if ever. The Holy Spirit is moving forward in power and might, and Paul and Barnabas are simply following behind and bearing the message. 
I want to remind us this morning that the Holy Spirit is key to all of it. The fact that God the Father and God the Son are pouring out the Holy Spirit with great power and might is what is making the difference. If not for the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel being preached by Paul and Barnabas would have fallen on deaf, dead ears and hearts. But as typically the case, there was also resistance. There were people coming to faith in Christ through the Spirit, but at the same time, there was a resistance to the message by unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. Whether it be witch doctors in Uganda or secularists in America and Europe, there's always resistance. I want to remind us this morning that just as Paul and Barnabas were called to preach the gospel, we are too. We are responsible to share the gospel anywhere and everywhere we have the opportunity to do it. But I want to remind us of something that's equally important this morning, and, and that is this, is we are not responsible for the result. We can't save anyone. We can't change anybody's mind. We can't change anybody's heart. God has to do that. That is his part in it. Our part is telling people, sharing the message. And the Lord has every right to expect us to faithfully do it. I'll say this, Paul and Barnabas certainly had a decided advantage over you and me because their message was accompanied by signs and wonders, miracles. But guess what? Paul and Barnabas get run out of town again. They flee from Iconium to Lystra and Derby in fear of their lives, and it would not be the last time it would become a common occurrence in their travels. Sometimes God is going to put us into very difficult situations. And the manner in which we respond to them very often has a lot to do with where we really are spiritually. 
I would like to tell you as a pastor that I, I always have a great sense of the presence of God. That he's with me all the time and I just feel it and I know it. But just like you, there are particular things that have happened in my life when I have sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit in a way maybe that I don't normally. Some of you have heard this story before because I've used it a number of times as i preached through the years. But to me, this is the time when for me, I sense the presence of God in a way that perhaps I never have at any other time in my whole life. Walter was there. He probably knows what I'm going to say. And I've used this a number of times. You may be getting tired of hearing it, but I'm just telling you this. I had a peace this night. I was not worried, I was not concerned, I was not scared, I wasn't afraid. I had a great sense that the hand of God was upon us and we had not one thing to worry about. But we were in Uganda. We'd been there on a three or four week mission trip, helping to lay the foundation for a church, mostly is what we did. Came time for us to leave. The night before, our, and we were in Fort Portal, which is literally hundreds of miles away from Kampala, where you fly out of. And we had made arrangements for Mission Aviation Fellowship in a little plane to pick us up in Fort Portal and fly us to Kampala to the airport the next morning because our flight left the next day. Back to the States. But we're sitting there eating dinner, and a car pulls up in front of the house that we were eating dinner in, and it's other missionaries that they've been on the shortwave radio, and they're not going to be issuing any flight permits for anybody the next day because it was some celebration in Uganda. So we're sitting here at this dining table knowing, because in those days there was only one international flight that left a week. If we didn't make it tomorrow... Actually, our flight would be the next day. We would be there at least another week. And we all had jobs to get back to and this, that, and the other. So we're sitting around thinking, what are we going to do? And we made this decision to borrow one of the cars of the missionaries and for the four of us to drive in the night from Fort Portal to Kampala, which no one ever did. We don't even go outside of our house at night is what Betty Heron, the missionary, said to me. Please don't try this. But being the boneheads that we are, we did. We drove all the way across rural Uganda through the night and didn't get there till the sun was coming up the next morning. But I can tell you guys and gals that I had a sense of God's presence. I was not, you, you would think that I would be in a panic and word is all get out. But I'm telling you, I was calm and cool as I could be because I just had the greatest sense. This is what God wanted us to do. And he was going to carry us there on eagle's wings, angel's wings. And he did. Not a blip. 
Well, we got partway there. And every now and then they'll have these roadblocks, and there's usually just one guard there or whatever, and it's not usually a much of a big deal, but, you know, they do that as a security means. And that sort of thing. So we pull up, and the, and the way that you know that there's a guard is they'll take an old tire and they prop it up on a stick in the middle of the road. <laughs> so when you see one of those, then you know you're supposed to stop. So we stopped, and we're sitting there for a few minutes, and we're looking around, and there's no soldier or whatever. So we're thinking it's the middle of the night. Maybe they're not, there's not a man post tonight. So we start to move a little bit, and I think I was driving at that point. And all of a sudden, we see this soldier stand up on the porch and start raising his rifle. And, uh, and so slam on the brakes. He comes over, you know, wants to know who we are, what are we doing, have you lost your minds? My advice to you is turn around and go back where you came from. But we went ahead. And God delivered us safe and sound, which I didn't doubt for one minute from the whole time the whole thing started. So why do I tell you this? It's to tell you, so, you, so you know that. God will not desert us. God is with us. Now, I mean, it could have turned out really bad. From a human perspective, You understand how that event in my life, that experience in my life has had a lot to do with my understanding of a lot of things. Because I'm telling you, that night, I can't speak for Walter, but that night, I, Keith Staten, experienced God in a manner that I never had before or since. He was with us in that truck. I have no doubt about it. And he brought us safely home. All the way. Not a glitch. Paul and Barnabas will have a pattern in their ministry, and that is they will go and they will minister, they'll preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, and then they will flee for their life. Normal human wisdom would have told them after the first time it happened, it's time to go home and forget about this monkey business. But that's not what they do. They continue to faithfully fulfill the ministry that God has called them to do. Very often under the threat of their very life. They go on to Lystra and Derby, towns that were south of Iconium. And just as they had done in Iconium and other places they'd been, they preached the gospel as they did in Cyprus. In other words, they changed their location, but they did not change their vocation. They just moved from one place to another. They continued to do what God had called them to do, a pattern that would be repeated many, many times through many, many years of ministry for both of them. Sometimes you wonder why God allowed this sort of thing to happen 
I can't speak for him, but there's some things that do make a little bit of logical sense. One of those was maybe it was perhaps to keep them moving. It would have been very easy for them to get some particular place, and they really loved the people a lot. The community was great. They loved the fellowship. I'm just going to stay here. I mean, we need to understand something. God is Lord of all, and he's behind this. He's the one, in essence, who's driving them from one place to another. And he's using the persecution to do it. It's been easy for them to come to some place and just get comfortable and say, you know what, I really like it here. I'm just going to sit here. Minister to these people. But their work wasn't finished. The fact is, it was just barely getting started. In Lystra, there was a man crippled from birth. Very much like the, the cripple that Peter healed in the temple at the very beginning of the book of Acts. Just like Jesus had healed many people in his ministry. Miraculous acts that validated the message. A means God was using of getting people's undivided attention. And also as a very special gift to the person who received the miracle. people began to draw very wrong conclusions about the miracles that they're witnessing. They began to say that Paul and Barnabas were themselves gods. That Paul was Zeus, or that Barnabas was Zeus, and Paul was Hermes. Zeus being the supreme ruler of the gods, possibly indicating at this point that maybe Barnabas took more of a leadership role than Paul did. Hermes for Paul, it was the messenger god. Perhaps Paul was doing most of the speaking. Paul and Barnabas were greatly perplexed and repulsed by this. They made it clear they were not gods. They were just like the people they were talking to. Anybody here been mistaken for a god at some time or the other? <laughs> seems like the you know very often the Jewish people were all about emotions and expressing those emotions they heard this and they tore their garments you know, an accepted practice amongst the Jews and it basically is symbolic of one's heart actually being rent or torn by something they've seen or they've heard. 
an expression of extreme grief. Grief for God. The fact of the matter is, is these were the people who were grieving God's heart. You ever think about this? There's a real sense in which the heart of God is grieved or rent every time a sin is committed. In particular, when that sin is committed by a Christian. And even more, when that person knows exactly what they're doing and they do it anyway. Just as they are here, they have been in other places. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So Paul, Paul suffers in a way that very few Christians ever will. We all understand this, that, uh, that stoning was a God-ordained means of execution given in the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 5, Deuteronomy 22, 21. The grounds for being stoned were for enticing others to worship idols. In other words, if someone in the Jewish community was caught trying to entice another Jew to participate in idol worship, that was sufficient for execution by stoning. Also, a woman or girl who gave up her virginity before she was married. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 and following. Also, anyone who touched Mount Sinai on the day the Lord descended upon it. Stoning. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't. Sometimes I personally have wondered if maybe Paul had actually been dead and then God resurrected him. The scripture doesn't say that. Wouldn't that be cool if it were true? We know that he was dead or appeared very much to be dead. Otherwise, they would have just kept stoning him. Amazingly, stoning is still the principal means of execution in certain places in the world. It's a lingering, painful death that can take hours. The actual cause is what we would classify as blunt force trauma. 
stones large enough to cause physical injury, but not big enough to cause instant death. You want the person to hurt. You want the person to linger as long as possible, to suffer as much as possible. Today, it remains the legal form of execution in Pakistan, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Qatar, Somalia, and other places that practice Sharia law. It's also the biblically prescribed means of capital punishment for certain crimes. Worshiping false gods for blasphemy, for inciting others to worship other gods, for conducting child sacrifice, for divination, for Sabbath breaking, for adultery, for the disobedience of a son. for taking things that were God's things. Stones large enough to injure, but not enough to kill for hours sometimes. The crowd believed that Paul was dead. That's why they stopped. Otherwise, they would have continued until he was. Sometimes I've looked at this and, and I've called, thought, maybe, maybe what's going on here is he actually did die and then God just resurrected him. It, but the text really doesn't say that. So we can't come to that conclusion. But we do know this, that Paul was sufficiently injured by the stoning that his executioners believed that he was dead. That's how close to death he certainly was. Paul will make reference to this event in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, where he's given a list of all the trials and tribulations he's endured in the ministry. I found an example of a modern-day uh, survivor of a stoning. It took place in 1997. A 20-year-old Iranian woman was, was charged with idolatry and stoned presumably to death. But she survived it. And after one year, they finally granted her amnesty. But in recorded history, she is one of the very few that have actually survived this. One of the most amazing things about this text is we're told here that on the very next day after being stoned and presumably dead, Paul went with Barnabas to Derby. It took that woman, tw that 20-year-old Iranian woman, 
over a year to recover from her injuries. And here we have the Apostle Paul on the very next day getting up and just moving ahead. And immediately going back to doing what got him stoned in the first place. He doesn't miss a beat. I would love to be able to tell you that being in the ministry has just been a bed of roses. Just this wonderful, invigorating, building, strengthening, wonderful experience that I've gone through. And anyone that has stood in a pulpit will tell you the same thing, that there really is a, a blessing that you get in doing what we do that goes beyond human understanding. To be called to be a preacher of the gospel is just an unbelievable privilege. But that doesn't mean it doesn't come with heart without heartache. Because every now and then there'll be see, you'll see someone in, 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 in your audience that is very much agitated with what they hear you saying. It doesn't happen all that often. There was a young woman about six months ago that was here visiting with us one, one Sunday. She got up right in the middle of the sermon and spoke a few words before she walked out the back door. She was agitated from the very beginning. I could see it in her. She did not like what she was hearing. And then the temptation is when you see stuff like that going on to kind of back off and whatever. But you have to remind yourself that your job is to preach truly the gospel of Jesus Christ, period, regardless of whether people receive it or not. For years, we had a couple that they were regular attenders here pretty much every Sunday. And let me tell you something. From the very beginning of pretty much every sermon, they had a scowl on their face. They looked like they were trying to burn a hole through you with their eyes. I experienced it for years. Every visiting pastor that was here during that time when I had a conversation with them after the worship service, all oh, the people there were great, but what about that couple with the death stare? In a private conversation, once they told me that I was, God had, in, had revealed to them that I was not called to preach.
which I took to heart. But the fact of the matter is I stand here this morning because you allow me to. You determine who the minister is in this church. You do that. I don't do that. The presbytery doesn't do that. The session doesn't do that. You do it. I love you guys. I know I am part of the Springs family. I don't doubt that for a minute. You are a very loving and caring congregation. Lori and I feel it. We know it. So don't get the idea that I don't feel like I'm part because that's just not what I'm saying. But technically speaking, I am not a member of this congregation. She is. I'm not. There's a sense in which my church is Central Florida Presbytery. That's where my membership is. Even today, you could call a congregational meeting and you could vote me out of this pulpit. If you did that, <laughs> I don't know what I would do after I cried a long time. <laughs> but I would hope. Let me t tell you, I really believe this. When God's done with me here, he'll get me out of here. I think ultimately it's not up to you, it's up to him. I really believe that. Let me tell you what I do. I love to do it. You know, I'll be 70 years old before long. But we're in this together. I guess all y'all know that. Just keep Mike and Barbara in your prayers. I know in a way, and Lori knows in a way, that you guys just don't understand what they're going through. They're in a place they've never been before in their whole lifetime. And sometimes it's not a very comfortable place to be because people now, they have far greater expectations for you than they have for themselves. They may not say it, So keep them in your prayers. One of the things we should walk away from from this chapter is this, is that we're engaged in a battle. It is a real battle. It is a bloody battle. It is a hurtful battle. It is a harmful battle. But God will bring us through it. 
not about you, but the biggest battle that I fight is me. But you know what I do? I preach the gospel to Keith. Over and over again. Every single day. And I know you do too. And if you don't, try it. You may regret it <laughs> temporarily. But once you get on the other side of the rough stuff, you'll be praising God because of it. Amen.